Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scheer. Michael Levitt was awarded the 2013 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for the development of multi-scale models for complex chemical systems. And uh, Michael Levitt, I used many words there that some of them I don't understand what they mean, so you will help me understand that. I didn't understand what they meant either until I got the Nobel Prize. <laughs> Levitt, along with Martin Karplis and Ariel Varshow, helped bring chemistry into the computer age from the late 60s to the early 70s. They successfully developed methods to predict and mimic the behavior of molecules. The Nobel laureate was in Seattle, Washington, to give a talk, The Birth and Future of Multiscale Modeling of Macromolecules, sponsored by the Graduate School UW Alumni Association, along with a number of UW departments, including Department of Bioengineering, Structure and Design Program, Chemical Engineering, Computational Molecular Biology, Engineering, School of Medicine. That tells me that this basic research has interests and applications across a lot of disciplines. That's certainly true. What, what are some of the, like, so what is computational molecular biology getting from this as well as engineering and medicine? Okay, so that's a very good juxtaposition of terms. Um, one of the big revolutions in biology probably occurred between 1950 and 1960, so that's uh, over 50 years ago, was to realize that inside our body there are molecules and they behave the way they do because of their structure. In other words, they have components, atoms, in very precise locations. And, uh, for example, both you and I have a molecule, hemoglobin, that transport oxygen in our blood. And that molecule is a very complicated machine that picks up oxygen in the lungs and then slowly gives it out. I mean, you wouldn't want to give out all the, he- all the oxygen just as you went into the blood. It's very carefully regulated. So it keeps the oxygen until it gets to the finest capillaries and then gives it out. So this is a, is a machine. It's made up of about... Uh, 6,000 atoms, but your machine and my machine are identical, maybe one or two tiny changes, and they work because of their shape. So if you look around the real world, you know, engineering is about things with shapes working in certain ways. And these shapes, uh, in, in the case of proteins, are very tiny. They are, people talk about nanoscale. These are sort of typically sub-nanoscale. But they're very intricate, they're very carefully designed, And it's their shapes, their structures, that leads to their function. So in some sense, there was this revolution that indicated that biology has more in common with civil engineering than it does with other things, because there's this evolution has set up these amazing shapes, which are encoded by our DNA, and everything in the body is carried out by little machines. So in some senses, inside of us are like, the most amazing clockwork engines. When you say, yeah, when you say machine or clockwork, you're, you're not using a metaphor. Well, I mean, it's not, it, it, they're not made of metal. I mean, the shapes that we think about are either made of plastic or metal. These are made of atoms. But you can think about the atoms as little spheres connected together. And these little spheres, the key thing is, is that it's, it's a precise shape. And, and you could also think about, if you think about things made of metal. So a knife is made of metal, a spoon is made of metal, a fork is made of metal, but the shape is different. And that shape governs the function. Mm-hmm. Be harder to cut your meat with a spoon mm-hmm. and harder to eat soup with a knife. So in, in, uh, the medium of, of which things are made is the very fundamental medium of atoms. If you look at a, a knife, it's also made of atoms, but the atoms are very, very... It, it's not a lot of fine-grained structure. So basically, in a knife... You know, you might argue that a knife is precise to within 
a tenth of an inch or a thousandth of an inch, whereas the molecules I'm talking about are precise to, you know, less than a millionth of an inch. That's actually a very profound notion, isn't it, that we're that precise? Well, it really, it means that biology is the ultimate nanomaterial. And, uh, you know, it's done great things. I mean, all the life around us is based on these principles. So in some senses, this has applications in engineering, it has applications in new materials. I mean, life has, you know, without really meaning to, solved many, many problems in the physical world. How you convert solar energy to chemical energy, how you convert chemical energy to other things. So, you know, and, and so therefore suddenly, uh, I think a lot of people who were not biologists are realizing that life, I, I tell people, and I don't want to get into a discussion about, you know, whether it was evolution or God or intelligent design, you can have whatever you like. The important thing is, is it wasn't us. We did not create life. So when you look around and you see a leaf taking sunlight and converting it to chemical energy, that is some, it's a machine that has to obey the laws of physics. It, it, doesn't, it can't cheat. It's got to worry about the real physical world. But it does a very interesting operation very efficiently. So we can actually just take all the things that have been created around us by life. Think about skin as a material. I mean, plastic is nice. But skin is so much more impressive. So I actually think that biology has become this, almost this watershed, this, this fountain of design principles. When you and your colleagues and the scientists who came before, because a lot of what I pick up in your work is that, that science is, is uh, everybody standing on everybody else's shoulders. Absolutely. Uh, was there in the 60s and 70s as computers became uh, a, a wa came washing computers, did, was there some kind of revelation? Was there some kind of connection that you said? I think oh, that computers, I mean, computers did not really, we, coming a washing computers, Really, I only mean for the scientists. No, but, but, I, but, I but even for the scientists, I think that uh, we became a washing computers when personal computers mm. happened in the 80s, early 80s. Whether at uh, IBM, uh, the Apple personal well, computers. So then, so then early on? Early on, they were very big machines that were very, very expensive. Yeah, but did uh, you guys have some we sort had, of... We had access to those machines, but the, the amount of power was very limited. Uh, and I think what is interesting is that... Uh, so. Typical chemicals, water, alcohol, you know, benzene, these are quite simple molecules. They might have, water has three atoms, benzene has 12. When I was talking to you about hemoglobin, it has 6,000. So proteins are a big jump in scale. They're still very precisely ordered. So, I mean, benzene has a very definite shape. It's a, a hexagon with hydrogen sticking out. Most people know how to draw benzene. Water is a little V. H2O. But basically, those small molecules also have properties that depend on their shape. Now, what was happening is, is that in the late 60s, people were just starting to work on those small molecules. And then, almost by chance, uh, I got involved and I wanted to work on large molecules. And I suddenly realized that the methods that had been used for small molecules could be quite easily adapted to work on large molecules. And this is something that nobody had thought. You know, people were working on molecules with 12 atoms, and suddenly I said, I want to use this on a molecule with 1,000 atoms. Computer memories were very small, so it wasn't just a question of cranking up the memory, but it didn't, it, it was more people just didn't see it, and they also didn't think it was useful. Hmm. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I think people didn't really realize that calculations would be useful in the sense that they would be accurate enough. I mean, there's, if you do a, I mean, like you can do a calculation on all kinds of things. 
I can say tomorrow's weather in, I can go to my iPhone and say, I predicted the weather tomorrow's going to be really hot and sunny in Seattle. Yeah, probably be wrong. Um, but, you know, you can do useless calculations. So the key thing was is that people did not think the calculations would be useful. But, of course, they didn't realize that computers were about to increase in speed very dramatically. So in those days, they were useful, but they were much more useful as an indicator of the direction. So when we did the very first calculations on an entire protein in 1968, uh, it was much more like proof of principle. It can be done. Of course, it would require a lot more work. And I think that uh, you, know, you might ask this basic. So what we basically did is showed how, because these molecules are these very precise objects, it's almost like the civil engineering hmm. of biology. Uh, people who were designing bridges were also worried about tension and struts and interacting pieces. And in, in proteins, you have exactly the same thing. Then the motion came into it. You can simulate how a bridge is going to vibrate or how it's going to move. So I think in many ways... And you're doing the same thing with the molecules. Exactly. And, but this is something which, you know, if you go back to the early, well, the late 60s, we're talking about almost 50 years. And in that period, things have incrementally improved. Computers kept on getting better. Uh, the basic methods of physics as applied to these systems got better. So I think it, it all happened together, and I think that uh, it, it also took, I, I would say the following, that uh, although biology can be described in this very structural way, a lot of people still see biology as these black box systems. And experimental biologists are extremely gifted at discovering things about black box systems. They can sort of say, well, we have a cancer cell and we do this to it and this to it. They don't necessarily understand what's going on inside, but they're very, very good at discovering its properties and how to affect it. Are you getting to the point then where you can go to those scientists and say, well, we, we're into the black box a little bit here? In some cases, yes. I mean, the black box is still very much a black box when it comes to a cell or a human being. But because it's so complicated still? Yeah. I mean, you know, one way to think about a cell a cell is about as complicated as New York City, mm -hmm. maybe even more so. It's got a lot of components. Again, you know, the basic fundamental building blocks are structured and have function. But the same structure continues. I mean, look at your hand. It's a structure. It, it has, and all of that is done by those tiny little building blocks. And, you know, I mean, in your hand, you probably have something like, probably in a finger, you have at least a million proteins. So there's probably even more. Actually, a lot more. I'm just saying that the... More like a million, million, million proteins. <laughs> so the scale is just unbelievably small, but all along, it's not like it's just very detailed. At every level, cells are very structured. Inside cells, there are larger machines. There are organelles. Cells form tissues. At every level, there's this principle of structure leading to function. This is a little bit off, but I was just curious in reading some of these things and also reading the, uh, I picked up the uh, Journal of, of uh, structural engineering or structural biology, um, is it useful at that level? To to is that where manipulation will take place at that level? I think so. It, it's relatively easy to manufacture at the smallest level. It turns out that the, the whole level. the whole revolution in genetic engineering that happened in the late seventies enabled us to manufacture proteins. We therefore could, in principle, design them. We could modify the design. Uh, what we don't really know yet is how to assemble them into these the whole hierarchy. So I don't think we could manufacture a hand by any means. We probably couldn't manufacture a cell. But we might be able to change some protein. Let's imagine that a cell is spherical. 
and you really would like to make the cell elongated, it's very likely that a very small change in one particular protein will do that. So the work you did and then the work your lab continues to do, is that the direction it's heading or is this at a level of basic science that the direction I think, I think is not that the question? The, I think that the distinction between basic science and applied science is somewhat artificial. Is that right? I think that there's a lot of emphasis now. I, I think what is very important is short-term return and long-term return. And I think Sounds that like economics. It is like economics. But, I, I, you know, people come along and they say, I want you to do some, it's called translation, translational research. You know, do something that's going to help people in a year's time. And I say back to them, okay, that's fine. I'll do that, but I'm going to give you $1,000. How much return will you give me on my $1,000 in a year's time? And you know, he'll probably say, well, maybe 1%. I'll say, that's what you're going to get. But if you gave them the money for 20 years, it could be anything. And I think that short-term, we don't really, you know, it, it, very often it's a fundamental discovery that one has no idea that it's really going to be important, that changes the paradigm. And it, it can be very successful, but often it's, it requires big pharma, it requires startup companies, it requires entrepreneurs. There are many different, it requires patent lawyers, it requires all these things. So it's not like, and, and oftentimes, you know, Things that matter are really not what you think. Um, I, I think that one difference between, I would say, between applied science and, and pure science, scientists have a tendency to disregard everything they can do. The, the saying is that in science, you're as good as your next paper. Hmm. Not your last paper or your current paper, but your next paper. Just basically saying, what are you going to give us still? And this necessarily makes you think, well, I can do that. It's no longer interesting. But for applied science, it's all that stuff that you can do is to look at how it can be used. And often that's very difficult. It's not obvious how you can make this. So I think, I think things are working very well together. I actually uh, am, am very encouraged by this, uh, these new departments of biomedical engineering. And you might think you know, medicine and engineering, but there's a lot of commonality. And somehow engineers like to solve pro pra practical problems. They'd like to make artificial skin. They'd like to you know, do something for your heart. But in doing so, there are a lot of fundamental problems. So in some senses, they have an objective, which is almost like science fiction. You know, we, we would like to, and, and if you look at any science, yet these things can be looked at. So I think it's a very, we have a department like this at Stanford, not as well established as the one here. But I really do think that there's something special. They also often bridge an engineering school and a medical school. And somehow you might think those are very different techniques. Maybe they are. I think that uh, engineers you know, know math and science and physics, and often medical people don't. But the interaction is wonderful. So I think there's going to be more and more of this in the future. You, you know, talking about breakthroughs, uh, you talked about that you, you thought the Nobel Committee had been brave in, uh, in awarding you three the, the, the prize because they, they, they saw the connection between, chemist, uh, between com computers and biology. Um, had you was that a breakthrough? You said you had you sort of showed the way. Did you guys I, know you had showed were showing a way? We we were very excited about the work, um, but being excited about the work and thinking you're going to get a Nobel Prize are two very different things. You know, I think that uh, getting a Nobel Prize it's it's not like you know you get a certain number of points and then you get the prize. <laughs> it's not like being top of the you know ATP or whatever. You know, you win a certain number of games, you'll be top. It really depends on the work having influenced people appreciating it. And I must say, I mean, I could 
think of a few reasons why we shouldn't have got the Nobel Prize. Firstly, it was work that was on a method. It wasn't like we solved a problem. In other words, the belief is that many problems will be solved by the things we laid out. But it isn't like, you know, we just solved cancer by doing a calculation. People believe that may happen in, in 100 years' time, but we didn't do it. So in some senses, it's still very much in progress. Computers have not traditionally been... I mean, the award was for chemistry, but it really is computers in biology. They say in the citation, complex systems. And a complex chemical system is biology. So again, there's a lot of tradition about uh, these things. I think, so, I think also by doing, almost by chance, this multi-scale aspect is basically that you, you have different models for different levels of complexity. So for example, if you're designing the suspension of a car, you really have to worry about each detail in, say, the springs and the, and the wheel. But if you're now modeling traffic flow in Seattle, you can think about each car as being a little sphere or a circle or something like that. So in all modeling, it's multi-scale. For some things, you're going to really worry about details. For other things, you're going to worry about appropriate detail. And I think that at the molecular level, we essentially came across with three different models that differed by about, one was atoms, one was quantum mechanics and electrons, about 10 times more complicated, and one was essentially a subset of the atoms, every 10th atom that was 10 times simpler. And much to our surprise, those methods actually have stuck. So people are using those methods. I, I, I'm not sure that our breakdown was that fundamental, but it's stuck. I think people end up being a little bit conservative. And for I'm whatever sure they reason, saw it and they it saw it and it worked and they stuck with it. And I think, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that there, I'm sure there are other methods. So, for example, if you want to think about traffic flow, you could think about this as a flow, not as little particles. There, there are many different views. And I think we're going to have a lot of different views. But that basically, and then I think the, uh, so the committee also, it, it, it was for a method. It involved computers. Both things were sort of unusual in biology. And thirdly, we didn't do one thing. We even did three different methods. So by calling it multi-scale, it's like saying, you know, you get an award for a basket of fruit, <laughs> which is not one fruit, whether you like it or not. Multi-scale means you've got at least two methods. Are those methods uh, complementary? Do what, does one work with the other? Absolutely. Exactly the same way that, you know, depending. And I think that because the structure in life involves so many different scales, this concept is going to become increasingly used. If you want to model you know, the movement of your finger, you would be crazy to worry about every atom in there. But the atoms, I mean, there might be a mutation in one protein that stiffens a joint, like arthritis, and suddenly you can't move your hand. So it, has an, it can have an, an application at a much higher scale, but you'd probably fix it by making it little drugs. So most drugs are very small molecules. There are molecules with... 20 or 30 atoms that essentially go in and attach to a protein and change its function. So they're like little keys that go in and change the protein locks. I see. So that is what gives the value to these methods because then you can, yeah. you can craft different keys. And I think we're going to learn a lot, lot more about drugs. I think that, I mean, I kind of feel that, uh, and I guess this is inevitable, but suddenly with the recognition of this early work, I think computers and biology are going to even be more popular. And people are going to stop fighting about, you know, I mean, any, any, any award is somewhat arbitrary. I mean, they could have chosen other people, it would have been fine. 
Uh, it's just that you know you you really want to get this out of the way and start to use it for more challenging problems, and also to break the paradigms. I think that uh, the things that we got, you know, I would almost say that I I'm glad these things lasted for 50 years, but I would be very unhappy if they're still around in 50 years from now. We need new paradigms. You you're a programmer. Programming mm -hmm. is is important to you. It's you're passionate about it. I would say it's psychological. Instead of instead of going to my psychologist twice a week, I program and go to a psychologist once a week. <laughs> uh, so what is it? So what's and what is it that? Uh, well, I, 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 you can tell me what it is that makes you mentally healthy. But what is it about the programming that helps you conceptualize it's, it's, the molecules and the proteins? You can actually it? do stuff. I mean, you can have an idea, and you can start writing code, and suddenly the ideas start to crystallize. And you go to places you didn't actually expect to go. So unlike, uh, I mean, a lot of uh, commercial programming is very well planned, a lot of design. But oftentimes in science, you don't really understand the system well enough to say, I want a program to do this. Very often you're trying to, uh, you know, and often the stuff is sort of trivial, but then it develops. And you say, wow, that leads to this. So somehow, I also feel in some way that it's a, I, I don't play a musical instrument. But sometimes when I program, I feel like I'm a pianist. I feel that my fingers are actually creating something. One of the troubles is you have to practice. So I do try to write programs all the time. I, it's, 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 it's a vanity. I mean, I don't have to write programs. But it's kind of nice. I think in life you want to do what you want to do. Yeah, and, uh, well, I heard you say at the, at the lecture that uh, you admire the games that are being yeah. created because of the, the density I'm, of programming. I'm a, great, I'm a great admirer of games. I also think that... Uh, so what's interesting about games is that you know, if you're above about 25, you haven't got a clue what's going on. And as a result, you don't really appreciate it. But I have an 11-year-old grandson who plays all sorts of games. And it's just amazing at how he... Basically, the virtual world of the games... And, you know, these are games essentially in two dimensions. He's not wearing virtual reality goggles or anything, but he's very familiar in that world. But he can... So there's a game that involves uh, an assassin in... I guess medieval Europe. Assassin's Creed. Assassin's Creed, exactly. So as a result of this game, I just took my grandson as a joke and said, look, here's Google Maps, Google Street Maps of Florence. Find your way around. And he knew Florence like the back of his hand. And he's never been there. Yeah. Uh, a lot of climbing in Assassin's Creed. So I took him to a climbing wall. Uh, I had a whole, you know, I, I was belaying him, but he was at the top in two seconds. Now, so I think that we're going to discover that there's a lot more, I think we'll be able to, you know, Pilots now have simulators. Right. I think that we're going to be much, much more involved in, in the virtual world. And I actually am I'm very excited now. There's a, something which I haven't actually played with, but I've heard about is this. Uh, so one of the things about the virtual world that's really important, when you look at a scene and you turn, so you see everything in stereo, but also when you turn your head, you see something different. And I think the eye is, the brain is set up to build a scene not as a gestalt, but as by building it up. So I'm looking at you, and I look at the television, and I get the relationship. So now they have these uh, virtual reality goggles. There's a company called Oculus Rift, or Oculus, that was just purchased by Facebook. And this is a, a essentially, it's essentially like an iPhone stuck in front of your head. And when you move your head, the image moves. So this gives a very, I, I tried this. Now the trouble is that if there's any delay between how fast you move your head and the image moving, you start to feel nauseous. Uh -huh. They've now perfected this by getting to a high enough... So typically, um, with all screens, there's like a refresh time. Like mm. television is like 25 times a second. This has to go to 90 times a second mm. to stop you getting nauseous. But the technology is now there. 
So you can now buy a device which you put in your head, and I think it would allow adults to be in the virtual world. But I also think, I've, I've, I've got very excited about this just in the last few weeks, to actually think that a lot of, you know, the biological into a cell, probably the best way to explore a cell is to actually walk into that world as if it was a game, look around, maybe even go with a colleague. You know, he can have his little icon there. And I think that this is going to happen. I think it's going to be cheap. It's going to happen maybe for social media or other things. You know, meet your friends online. And actually them, meet them. And actually talk to them. Will we have an understanding of... Will we see the, the, the blank parts in the cell where we don't know yet what well, it is? Well, we might have to do some scheme for that. We might make them gray. We might have different levels of approximation. But you're saying it's an, it could but be I an exploration. But I, I do think that we're very good. We, we, our evolution is very, very good in the three-dimensional world around us. We can work our way through buildings. You know, and, and you could almost imagine, people are now talking about this, so for example, viewing financial information. Perhaps if you saw you know, the banks physically there and you could see their, you know, the foundation shaking when they're... <laughs> things like this, I would bring it to you and you would remember it. I think the trouble is, is that <clears throat> some people are very good at remembering an Excel spreadsheet, but other people are not. So I actually think that there's gonna be a total revolution that, and it's going to stop with games, and the great thing about it being games is that all the development costs are funded by the gamers. Mm -hmm. So the key thing in science, mm. as I was talking about the revolution in computers, <coughs> what really changed things were home computers being able to be used for science. And this really happened in the, it's quite late, mid-90s, when a Finnish programmer wrote a, a programming system called Linux, Li Linus Torvald. And this basically allowed a small computer, a PC, to suddenly run really massive calculations. And this has now gone on. So right now, the, the current hit are graphics processor units. All these gaming machines have very fast <coughs> graphics cards. These graphics cards, which are designed to render scenes and show shading and things like that, can be used for calculations that I do. Yeah, you got a great question. There was a great question last night where that, that's exactly what that student yeah. was wondering. So how, basically, how it's, it? it's, it's, coming, it's becoming more <coughs> and more powerful. Uh, you know, we're getting increase in power by leaps and blinds. But I actually do think, I mean, you can even take, when I was talking about virtual reality, Google has a little cardboard viewer. You put your Android phone in there, and now you get virtual reality, because as you move your head, it knows, I mean, it's got an accelerometer inside. The trouble is that it's not fast enough. So after 20 seconds, you start to feel nauseous. Uh, but that's gonna be solved. You know, you, um, you s we were talking about this before we started, and, and you've said it before. You're in your early 60s? Late 60s. Late 60s. Uh, I am in my 60s. I talk to older people who, who are afraid of these things, and they, they don't think they need them. Are they right? No, they definitely need them. Afraid is, you know, it, it, I think it's not easy how you make people unafraid. So one thing that I, I have a mother who's 99. She has a personal computer. She has a Mac, iPhone, and iPad, but she has a a Windows personal computer. And what I find is really useful, there are ways in which I can log into her computer from anywhere in the world, get her on the phone, and I'm not sitting next to her, so she's not threatened by me, but I'm moving her mouse after talking to her. So she said, you know, how do I get my favorites? And I said, let me show you, but I'm not physically there, so I'm not overpowering. Usually with computers, you know, if a 10-year-old shows you how to use an iPhone, it's like, it's flash. But if you could actually get outside help for older people, so that they would be using their phone, but they would call up some center who would take them through it. 
And you can certainly do it. On, there's no reason why you shouldn't do this. I mean, you can do it on a PC by logging in remotely. There's absolutely no reason why you couldn't do it on a phone. And I think that would be a great way to learn. So I think there's going to be more. Room. I, I just hope it happens because I think that people, you know, I, I could not function without my, my computer expertise. I mean, from remembering things and stuff like that. You know, you've said this uh, a couple times, and you said it again in the lecture. I heard you say it to the Nobel uh, at the Nobel Committee, and and it, it it goes hand in hand, I think, with what we were saying about how young people are excited about and part of the virtual world, and you know, the gamers who were disdained are really people who are making breakthroughs. You said, be be passionate, be persistent, be original, and be kind and good, and science. Kind and good. Is that just I overall? Or? I think in human interactions, I think that people... I, I, I'm not a great fan of arrogance. I mean, maybe arrogance is important if I'm walking in a bad neighborhood and I've got to stand like I'm, I know what I'm doing. I, everyone actually says to me that if I walk in a bad neighborhood, people are going to be scared of me because the way I'm dressed and things like that. I'm, you know, I've got a nice shirt on today, but it's not normal. <laughs> but I think that you know, hum, every single person is accomplished in something. I mean, one of the nice things about what happened to me, and sometimes I call it the N-word, but it's not really fair uh, to play it down, is that I've met a lot of people who are very good at what they do, whether it's interviewers, photographers, audio people, even taxi drivers. And it's really impressive to see that there's a huge array of skills. And I think it's really important to open yourself up as much as possible to people. It's a kind and good, I think, I mean, you know, I, I don't think I've ever, ever lost out in my life by missing an opportunity, not being tough enough. You know, I, I tell people I'm kind and good, but I can actually add and subtract quite quickly. So, you know, you're not going to cheat me. But I think somehow, you know, people respond very well. If you go to somebody and you act aggressively, they're going to act aggressively back. So you're not going to gain anything. You're going to think you gain. I think also, you know, a lot of people sort of feel they deserve the Nobel Prize. And I think that's a really bad idea. You should never feel you deserve anything. You should be grateful for everything you have, and oftentimes I think about all the bad things that haven't happened to me. You know, any one of us can think, well, I wasn't killed yesterday in a road accident. I didn't fall down the stairs this morning. You know, I didn't have leukemia two days ago. So we, we have all have been spared enormous numbers of bad things. Rejoice. Uh, so I think being kind and good, actually, I, I, and, you know, I think that sometimes not all scientists feel that way. Some scientists feel you need to be very aggressive. And I think maybe it helps sometimes, but I don't think it's fun. You know, you really want, I mean, I, I, my colleagues, I want them to like me. Just because I think I like other people. I, I, I don't think there's anything, this is not, this shouldn't be such a big surprising thing. I mean, you could argue that every politician should say the thing. Every actor should say the same thing. Well, does it, it doesn't necessarily make for better science, but it surely doesn't, doesn't make for worse no, science. No, but I think it does make fun. for better science. It does. It's encouraging people, making people feel, I mean, it's difficult because, you know, uh, scientists can be very intimidating. What I was saying before about helping somebody with their phone by not being physically present is a very good idea. I do a lot of interactions from afar. I, I've discovered with some of my uh, graduate students who were very, very smart, I couldn't get through to them until I actually went away and we had long email discussions. And we both had time to think. We could write to each other in a, in a, in a, in a sensible way. And we could break the ice. So I think, you know, I, I think that I, I am a great fan of the modern world. I think that all of these discoveries are really exciting. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, the Internet is so bad and it's all these bad things happening. And I explain to them, you know, look at European history. Gutenberg's printing press 
probably resulted in a, a hundred million deaths. All the religious wars, it was horrendous. And it's a direct result. So, you know, we're way ahead with the internet right now. We haven't gotten nearly as bad as that. So I think people need to realize that, you know, I even tell people, but this is maybe a little bit controversial, that, you know, this horrendous threat of ISIS, they're actually quite economical because instead of killing a thousand people quietly, they kill one person with a great deal of fuss. They get all the publicity. Everyone is scared of them. They just saved 999 people. Now, this is not maybe, uh, I don't know, this could get me into trouble. <laughs> I get your point. I think that, but, you know, terrorism is a very interesting thing, and I think they're using Facebook cleverly. I think, I think there's a lot of opportunities. I am every day excited more and more about just the, the way the world is changing. Gives you opportunities to respond, too, because if they're in that world exactly. and they're using but that we have to language, be clever. We you have, have to be clever. clever. And I think there's always, but you always have to be clever. I think, uh, you know, a, a gut reaction response is you should never be predictable. You need to think what you're going to do, and you know, we'll win. Because what they're doing is not interesting. It's not. It's not. It's frightening. It's frightening, but, but terrorism doesn't is take not, us forward. You know, terrorism is basically when you have a much bigger effect than you should have. You know, it, it's not when you come in there with a big force and take care. When you scare people to leave. So I, it doesn't accomplish, it doesn't build. No, no, no. I, I, I'm actually very upbeat. I think that uh, I uh, feel the world is actually doing a whole lot better than it was in the past. You know, look at last century. That was a bad century for mankind. We're doing fine. We, you know, we, we are taking care of problems. Most of the world is on board. You know, there are a few countries that are not, but most people want, I would say, American values. They have a hard time sometimes learning how to get them. And so good science helps. Good science, science helps with that. Science is a completely international language. Okay. Thank you, sir. Great. Wonderful. Michael Levitt is a biophysicist and Stanford professor of structural biology, modeling the shape of proteins to answer questions about amino acids and their influence on protein structure. He also uses computer simulation to predict the position of the thousands of atoms in a protein molecule, getting a picture of how changing conditions affect the protein. Professor Levitt runs the Levitt Lab at Stanford University. In 2013, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for the development of multi-scale models for complex chemical systems. He was a guest at the University of Washington. You can find more conversations with some of the great guests who are visiting the University of Washington. Subscribe to our podcast at length. Thanks for listening. I'm Steve Scher. This program is supported by the University of Washington Alumni Association.